welcome to Molotov Meow. In Molotov Meow, we analyze and discuss, use articles and stories of resistance from the alien race, and look to seize the means of value production from the humans. In the spirit of building solidarity between the pets and the strays, we hope to inspire direct action in the face of oppression, and to light a fire to find each other in the darkness. Welcome to Monotopia. In this episode, we will finally be taking control of the airwaves and talking about... Yeah, they're in here. Get out of here! Can you turn that off? Okay, let's try that again. Welcome to Molotov Now, a podcast about taking action. In Molotov Now, we analyze and discuss news articles and stories of resistance from around the globe and connect them to our struggles here at home in Aberdeen, Washington. In the spirit of building solidarity between the rural and the urban, we hope to inspire direct action in the face of oppression and to light a fire to find each other in the darkness. This is Sprout. And this is Sherry Ann. And we are the hosts of Molotov Now. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the podcast. On this episode, we will be interviewing Dr. Aaron Goings about their presentation regarding the 100th year anniversary of the death of a local wobbly named William McKay at the May Day on the Harbor celebration put on by the Black Flower Collective and doing a report back on the day's festivities. But before we go on with our regularly scheduled Radical News Roundup, We here at Molotov Now have an announcement regarding the future of our podcast that we would like to share with our listeners. That's right. As of now, we are officially co-conspirators of the Channel Zero Network. Hold on, Sherian. What's the Channel Zero Network? Well, I'm glad you asked. Channel Zero is an English-based anarchist radio podcast network run by radical media makers. We are here to present anarchist analysis and context to deepen people's understanding of the situation and broaden the struggle. We share stories from the front lines, lessons from history, and battle-tested ideas to spread revolutionary practices. During these days of late capitalism and rising nationalism, we are constantly bombarded with right-wing radio and shallow liberal analysis with the threat of fascism. Everything in this framework falls within parameters set by the state and offers no way out. We present perspectives that exist outside of that paradigm through interviews, documentaries, panel discussions, and audio zines. Fuck what you heard. This is resistance. This is going to be sick. For sure. But along with a new platform that allows us the opportunity to bridge the divide between rural and urban radicals, comes a fresh start with a new format for the podcast. 
We will be limiting our reporting for the time being to our Radical News Roundup and stories specific to radical organizing within the Pacific Northwest and Grace Harbor area, as well as warning the people about those mischievous shadow cats. We hope this, in turn, will allow us the time needed to sharpen the focus of the main content of our episodes, start planning for future episodes, and hopefully in the near future, with your support and donations, we may be able to begin to better fortify the defenses in our recording studio from the Sabo Cats in order to start posting on a bi-weekly schedule as opposed to monthly and bring you twice the content. So be sure to check us out on the Channel Zero Network, as well as other great podcasts such as It's Going Down, The Final Straw, Indigenous Action, Grounded Futures, and many more. If you enjoy this content and would like to see more of it, please consider donating to our sponsor at the Black Flower Collective. You can find all the ways to donate to them at linktree backslash LLC. The Black Flower Collective is a worker-owned and operated enterprise dedicated to the creation of a world in which individuals have the autonomy, knowledge, and resources to create fulfilling lives and communities free of oppression. Black Flower's mission is to learn together the ways in which to healthily relate to each other and to our environment. They seek to sustain and nourish their collective through fulfilling work, personal empowerment, and equitable compensation, while providing a hub for political thought and culture in Grace Harbor County. Their goal is to provide low-income housing to people facing homelessness, pairing this living experience with a social center that provides for the needs of the residents and wider community. If you are interested in participating in or donating to this project for more information, please visit linktree backslash LLC. We will return after these brief messages. When we come back, we will kick this episode off with our regularly scheduled Radical News Roundup. But for now, a word from our sponsors. The Final Straw is a weekly anarchist radio show. It's fucking awesome, and you're never going to hear me say fucking awesome on our show because we're FCC regulated. There's a, a black part of my heart that that just flutters when you when you talk like that. I uh, talk then more yelling. It's a weird sort of like nice thing in a way, but also can get kind of crushing at times. The final straw radio back to Molotov now. It's time for our monthly news recap. In local news, the third annual May Day on the Harbor was held on the 1st of May, or International Workers' Day, in Hoquim this year at events on Emerson. More on that later in the show. Picking up on a story that we have been covering from Dayton, Washington. After years of harassment at the hands of her local law enforcement, we are pleased to announce that the charges against Katie Hussey have been dropped. After going to court, the prosecutor has decided to drop all charges relating to her case. This is likely because if the case had gone to trial, the police department would have ended up looking bad, if not losing the case outright. This is great news, but Katie still faces a tough battle to regain what has been stolen from her. During and because of this ordeal, she has lost her job and housing. The charges still show up on her record as of now, and so none of her typical contract work will hire her at the moment. Her mental health has suffered because of this harassment, 
And she has said, quote, the charges may be dismissed, but that doesn't bring my home back or my job or the people I had in my life who looked at me differently because of this whole thing now, end quote. With no sense of closure or justice, she has been thoroughly abused by this system and now has to work to get back to where she was prior to all of this. When asked what justice would look like, she said that having disciplinary charges brought against the sheriff and deputies involved would be a good place to start. Some measure of accountability so that this doesn't end up happening to anyone else. If any of our listeners have suggestions for getting Katie the justice she deserves, please contact us at sabo underscore media at riseup.net. This situation has her feeling lost, and she would appreciate any advice or direction so that she can help to make sure no one else has to go through this. On a warm holiday Sunday in Vancouver, Washington, dozens of local queers celebrated the unofficial start of summer by gathering from morning till afternoon for a big gay wedding, right outside of a Christian nationalist hate church that preaches for their eradication. On May 28th, Vancouver residents came together in solidarity to protest the ongoing King James Conference that was being hosted by Christian nationalist hate preacher and Jack Chick Reject, Aaron Thompson. Thompson, of Washington's Sure Foundation Baptist Church, whose sermons openly call for the genocide of queer folk, received viral attention last November as a video of one of his sermons praising the Club Q mass shooter and calling for the atrocity that left five dead and 17 injured a good thing began to make its rounds about the internet. Content warning for genocidal content, slurs, and anti-queer rhetoric. If you would like to skip this content, please skip ahead one minute and 34 seconds. That, that uh, club got shut up the other day. Now, am I sad that five homos got shot? No, I'm not sad at all. As a matter of fact, I think it's a good thing that they're not here anymore to molest kids. And I'm again, I'm not condoning anybody to do anything like that. I don't believe it's right to take the law into our own hands. And I've said that so many times. But here's what I won't be upset about. I'm not going to be upset when someone that hates God and actively is promoting against God and hates his guts and molests children, even if it is just their eyeballs, to have to see these freaks writhing around and, and, and you know doing all these crazy dances in front of children and then afterwards reading them a book or something. I said it's not right to take the law into your own hands, but I do understand why people are so fed up because our own government is protecting these freaks and that's all you see on the media right now. You know, right-wing MAGA kills, you know, these, these queers, and then some guy jumped in and helped them or whatever. Who cares? Like, I really don't care that those people got killed. And you're like, that sounds really hateful, Pastor. Well, it is hateful because I do hate them because they're a, a menace and a wart on the rear end of society. Amen. And there, there's nothing redeeming about them whatsoever. Yeah. Listen, we're in America. We can say whatever we want. And I'm not inciting violence, so don't even try to go there. But anyway, happy happy Thanksgiving. On the fourth day of this Christian Nationalist Conference, locals had organized a big gay wedding in order to protest the ongoing genocidal rhetoric of the church, including four queer marriages, multiple musical performances including Gabe from 1876, indigenous spoken word, drag show performances by Johnny Nereal and Isaiah, and speeches from Kim Harless from the Vancouver City Council and various local pastors and inclusive churches who came out to support the queer community and speak out against the genocidal rhetoric of the Sure Foundation Baptist Church. In the face of rising Christo-fascist violence in the United States, 
Organizers did a wonderful job of doing everything in their power to maintain a protest environment that was safe for all members of the community to participate in. They provided free water and snacks for participants, maintained free and clear access to the entrance to the roadway while offering assistance to those pulling out who couldn't see past the crowd, multiple medics stood nearby with first aid and trauma kits, as well as a well-armed local community defense group, well-trained in de-escalation tactics who provided security for the event. The preparation taken on by the organizers and the commitment to take seriously the threats of fascism when they arise in their community are great examples of what we should see in our own actions. There are many lessons that can be learned from such a wonderful action of queer resistance and militant joy. In an Instagram post written by drag performer Johnny Neriel stated that, The demonstration was a triumph, a celebration of love, and a successful mission to spread awareness of very real harm that is being caused in the LGBTQIA2S plus community. Hashtag Big Gay Wedding in protest to hashtag Christian Nationalism's anti-LGBTQIA2S plus doctrine, the objective was to shine light and gain support. The folk who showed up were beaming love all day. I got to officiate legally binding queer marriages and cheer and dance with beautiful people. I got to perform in the street with my beloved rider Di Isaiah. For more information about this action, keep an eye out for a report back from the Harbor Rat Report, coming soon. In Everett, Washington, the Everett City Council expanded its no-sit, no-lie law Wednesday, giving the mayor new authority to set buffers around social service providers in areas, quote, highly impacted by street-level issues, unquote. The council in 2021 approved the law that created a buffer zone around the Everett Gospel Mission, which runs a homeless shelter on Smith Avenue. The ordinance made lying down and sitting on nearby public property, mainly sidewalks and streets, a misdemeanor with a fine up to $500 and 90 days in jail. In April, city staff and Mayor Cassie Franklin proposed expanding that law with broad authority for the mayor to make similar buffer zones as she sees appropriate. It would also ban groups and people from giving food, supplies, and water to someone on city property in the buffer zones unless they have a permit. On Wednesday, the same day Sonomish County published its annual homelessness snapshot that found an 8.5% growth from the last year's count, the council passed the law on a 4-3 vote. Everett City Council President Brenda Stonecipher, who voted for the law, said the buffer zones are imperfect solutions to homelessness but can help persuade residents from opposing service facilities opening near them. Councilmember Paula Ryan, who voted against the law, said people should have somewhere they can go before being told they can't be there. Her request to tie the law's effective date to when the city opens a day shelter failed on a similar 4-3 vote. Across the street from Everett City Hall, people who coordinate mutual aid groups and stock a free food pantry and refrigerator in North Everett rallied to decry the ordinance before and during the council meeting Wednesday. In a response to this action by the city council, local mutual aid group Punks in the Park said on Twitter that the city is already leaving people uninformed of the decisions being made and expressed that the permits mentioned do not exist in reality. They have held demonstrations in opposition to this ordinance and have a call for action currently around this issue. From Twitter. Call to Action Email city council members to let them know we oppose EMC 9.54.000 and EMC 10.35.000. Email template and council emails now available in the links. Feel free to write your own thoughts. Hashtag homelessness is not a crime. Hashtag houses not handcuffs. Hashtag stop the sweeps. 
That link tree is linktree backslash punks in the park. For more information, follow Punks in the Park, Medic Viv, and South Everett Mutual Aid on Twitter. As mentioned in our last show, the Dual Power West Gathering is happening June 2nd through the 4th, an hour outside of Portland, Oregon. This unconference is being organized by a temporary collective of autonomous organizers in an attempt to spread community, radical ideas, and action throughout the West Coast and beyond. Come on out to help organize the event and learn from other participants on how we can resist state power and build collective autonomous power outside of the state. For more information and to RSVP for the event, visit the website dualpowerwest.org. It's time for our Radical News Roundup from other autonomous media organizations that we follow. Unicorn Riot is a decentralized, educational, 501c3, nonprofit media organization of journalists. Unicorn Riot engages and amplifies the stories of social and environmental struggles from the ground up. They seek to enrich the public by transforming the narrative with accessible and non-commercial independent content. You can find the following articles on their website at unicornriot.ninja. April 27th, federal agents kill man in North Minneapolis. April 29th, the Battle of St. Soline. May 1st, guilty verdict in St. Paul murder trial of white vigilante not enough, says victim's family. May 2nd, May Day riots against pension reform in Paris. May 3rd, fourth killer of George Floyd found guilty. May 4th, one granted bond, two denied pretrial release, and forest defenders appear for preliminary hearings. May 6th. Crimes on Humanity. UN visits Minneapolis to investigate human rights after pressure campaign. May 8th. Three face felonies for allegedly flyering near home of one Georgia trooper tied to killing a forest defender. May 10th. Ten years after Terrence and Ivan killed by Ma- Minneapolis police. May 11th. Andrew Kearse remembered. Widow shares the pain of losing her husband to police. May 16th. Defense attorney Earl Gray says black foreman is racist after guilty verdict. Judge grants new hearing. May 16th. We do not need a school for assassins. Hours of public comment unanimously against Cop City. May 17th. The Battle at Naga World. The Longest Strike in Cambodian History, Part 1. May 18th. Thousands attend VO.me's celebration of 10 years of factory occupation in Greece. May 18th. Cop City panel member posted slurs online. Archived tweets indicate. May 19th. Rally demands Marvin Haynes's release from 19 years of wrongful imprisonment. May 20th, Tale of the City, Gentrification in London, Part 1. May 23rd, Judge rejects white vigilantes' defense motions against black foremen, sets sentencing date. May 24th, The Battle at Naga World, this longest strike in Cambodian history, rages on, Part 2. May 25th, Revolution in Every Country Comic Series, Episode 3, Lebanon, on the Necessity of Intersectionality. May 26th, Minneapolis Continues Encampment Evictions, Displacing Hundreds in May. May 27th, Palestinian Qadr Adnan, Qadr Adnan dies on hunger strike in Israeli prison. 
May 30th, Rave Against the Machine, How One Rave Promoter Stood Up to the DEA and Won. May 30th, Don't Forget Us, Forest Defenders Confront Horrors of Life in DeKalb County Jail. It's going down, and you're invited, for what they sell it, we ain't buying, there is no running, there is no hiding, there's only fighting, or dying. It's Going Down is a digital community center for anarchist, anti-fascist, autonomous, anti-capitalist, and anti-colonial movements across so-called North America. Their mission is to provide a resilient platform to publicize and promote revolutionary theory and action. You can find the following articles on their website at itsgoingdown.org. April 28th, 2023 Statement from Marius Mason. April 28th, Report on March and Encampment at Georgia Tech to Stop Cop City. April 29th, Solidarity Campaign with Florida 4 underway. April 30th, Patriot Front Leader Exposed in Flyers in Ann Arbor. April 30th, In Contempt Number 28, Anti-Repression Campaign Spread, Barton Jail Hunger Strike. May 2nd, Turf Rally in Trenton, New Jersey, Shut Down by Anti-Fascist Coalition. May 2nd, May Day 2023, Announcing Our Program. The Black Rose Anarchist Federation announces the publishing of the organization's political program. May 3rd, This is America, number 186. May Day, Fight Against Cop City Continues, Cleveland Anarchists Killed in Ukraine. May 4th, Remembering Cooper Andrews. May 6th, People Take to the Street and Occupied Flagstaff to Honor and Avenge. Hashtag MMIWG2ST. May 8th, Judges Uphold Domestic Terrorism Charges Against Stop Cop City Activists. May 8th, Final Straw, Trans Resilience in Texas. May 8th, Anarchist Political Prisoner Dan Baker Needs Support. May 8th, Xenophobic Title 42 Ends, Biden's Immigration Reform Nowhere to be Found. May 10th, Neither Condemned Nor Persecuted, Solidarity with Miguel Peralta. May 12th, Indigenous Resistance in Mexico, Border Militarization, and the End of Title 42. May 13th, Betraying the White Race in the 21st Century. May 13th, SM28 Dissolves, a balance sheet. May 13th, call for solidarity from the hashtag Aki movement, blockade at KM16. May 16th, Proud Boys plan unsuccessful trap for anti-fascists in the Inland Empire. May 17th, Hitler saluting White Lives Matter neo-Nazis chased off by locals in T- Templeton, California. May 18th, Urban ore workers in Berkeley win IWW union election. Get ready to negotiate contract. May 18th. Autonomous distros give away thousands of trees. May 22nd. Community mobilizes and defends church drag event from Proud Boys in, in Portage, Michigan. May 23rd. System fail, rise of AI, resistance committees in Sudan, and defending squats in Barcelona. May 23rd. Final straw, mutual aid at the border in Tijuana with El Comedor. May 24th, Zine Release, Creaker Volume 4. May 24th, Anti-Fascists Shut Down Neo-Nazis and Proud Boys Throwing Up Hitler Salutes in Sacramento. May 16th, Canadian Tire Fire No. 56, Drag Defense, Mining Shareholder Meeting Disrupted. May 21st, Storming In, Struggle in Atlanta Against Cop City Continues Despite Repression. May 22nd, States of Incarceration, Abolition, Revolt, and Organization. May 22nd, 
Graffiti writers are painting over a pro-police street art campaign backed by a tech billionaire in San Francisco. May 27th, Independent Media in the Social Struggle, an interview with Avispa Media. Crime thought is everything that evades control. CrimeThink is a rebel alliance. CrimeThink is a banner for anonymous collective action. CrimeThink is an international network of aspiring revolutionaries. CrimeThink is a desperate venture. Check out these articles at CrimeThink.com. April 27th, Bashback is back. Reviving an insurrectionary queer network. An interview. May 3rd, in memory of Dmitry Petrov. An incomplete biography and translation of his work. May 24th, Recipes for Disaster. Asphalt Mosaics, a hot weather activity for lonely asphalt near you. We're getting the cue that it's time for a short break. When we return, we will read from the Harbor Rat Report on a report back on the May Day on the Harbor event presented by the Black Flower Collective, entitled Local Leftist Festivities Fall Flat. In the meantime, here's Hoquiam's Blues by the Window Smashing Job Creators, as performed live on May Day. Hit it! <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. That's the way it goes. Uh, you know, the police are defined by enforcing class relations. That is part of their definition. Getting rid of them is crucial to a free society. And also getting rid of the class relations they protect, be it state class relations or capitalist class relations, and other forms of entangled oppression that go along with that, such as racism, patriarchy, ableism, transphobia, you name it. All of those different uh, oppressions are heavily connected to political and economic
Welcome back to Maltub Now. Let's read this article from the Harbor Rat Report on the third annual May Day on the Harbor held here in Hoquiam. So the title of this piece is called Local Leftist Festivities Fall Flat? Question mark. It reads as follows. Since 1886, May Day has been an important holiday for the global working class. The history is often repressed in this country, being one of a minority that doesn't celebrate International Workers' Day on May 1st, despite being the country which served as the catalyst that created the holiday after the Haymarket Massacre of 1886. In an attempt to rekindle the knowledge of and the respect for that forgotten history, local leftists have put on an annual May Day celebration for three years running. Initiated by the Chehalis River Mutual Aid Network in 2021, the yearly celebration has grown exponentially since its grassroots beginning in Zalasco Park, an event which included performances by the Plank Island Theater Company. Growing with each passing year, public interest in the event has continued to steadily grow as turnout has increased with each passing year and local business participation has taken off, including participation from Art HQ, the Black Flower Collective, and events on Emerson, who came together to put on a wonderful May Day on the Harbor for 2023. This year had a full day of activities and events, including plenty of historical exhibitions. The third annual May Day on the Harbor was held at the local event center, Events on Emerson, and was proposed by the newest radical project on the harbor, the Black Flower Collective. The Black Flower Collective has formed around the issues that have arisen from the continued organizing among the unhoused population in the Aberdeen area, such as lack of housing, work, food, and community. In the effort of improving conditions for the working class in Grace Harbor, and in the spirit of the working class holiday, they have taken on the role of leading a new affinity group on the harbor called the May Day on the Harbor Planning Committee, that we here at Cyber Media have had the pleasure of taking part in. Through our connections with the Black Flower Collective, we helped to develop historical displays, produce video shorts, zines, buttons, and more for the event. We were happy to donate the work to this worthwhile effort and join them in celebration as this year's May Day marked the first birthday of Sabo Media. We were not the only people that showed up to table at this event, however. Quite a few guests had come to share in this celebration of working class history with us. Other tables at the event included historical displays from our local area, including local historian Connie Parsons. The Zine Distro Historical Seditions came with literature and merchandise. One table even offered zines produced during the Center for Especifismo Studies Militant Kindergarten's coursework. Blackflower Permaculture, an offshoot landscape design team, was there to demonstrate their design services and talk about permaculture in relation to the need for working-class food sovereignty. Chehalis River Mutual Aid Network participated again in this year's event hosting an info table and collecting signatures for volunteers looking to get involved in mutual aid and community outreach. Our local chapter of Food Not Bombs also arrived in tandem with the Chehalis River Mutual Aid Network and catered a community potluck where they serve free food, including burgers and hot dogs, throughout the day. Art HQ also participated in the event by donating art supplies and helping to set up a kid's corner filled with DIY art projects. Other activities included free face painting, an educational history scavenger hunt, and subsequent prize table. The major draw for people seemed to be the live music portion of the day. Various bands from Olympia, including Them Badgers, Virtual Bird, and the Window Smashing Job Creators, came down to support our Harborite comrades and hosted a free benefit concert at the third annual May Day on the Harbor. Citizens and guests of all ages cheered on the guest performances and young and old alike sang along to these songs of freedom. And of course, the Black Flower Collective themselves were in attendance. 
fundraising for their land projects, selling merchandise and auctioning off a library's worth of radical literature and other items donated by the community. Their table also hosted a contest to win a brand new Nintendo Switch by entering to guess the correct number of jelly beans contained within a large glass jar. Many people generously bid on the slew of awesome items up for auction, and the word is the event was a huge success for them, bringing in somewhere between 150 and 200 attendees throughout the day. Anytime we can get out in the community and talk to people about the stuff we are so passionate about is a good day, said one member of the collective when reached for comment. In a scene as wholesome as apple pie, the end of the announcements of the auction winners, and at the declaration of the winner of the jelly bean count, a little girl in the audience, after having taken a savvy approach to the challenge by using math to approximate the number of jelly beans, was declared the winner, and her response was comparable to the excitement of the classic Nintendo 64 Kid video. The peak of the evening's events, though, was a moving lecture from labor historian Dr. Aaron Goings, who gave a historical presentation about the radical working class history here on the harbor, as discussed in his books by the titles of Port of Missing Men and The Red Coast. During the duration of his talk, Dr. Goings brought to attention the life of William McKay, an Aberdeen resident and member of the International Workers of the World, who was murdered on the picket line 100 years ago in 1923, while protesting for the release of political prisoners captured by the state in a concentrated effort to demoralize the working class and the burgeoning labor movement. The oration concluded with a final message written on the banner of William McKay's funeral procession. Fellow worker William McKay, killed by a company gunman, a victim of capitalist greed. We never forget? Question mark. As 100 years have passed since the death of William McKay, as 100 years have passed since their death was last spoken to the public ear, the question mark at the end of this banner has become less of a question and more of a challenge. A challenge to remember. A challenge to preserve the history of the working class. What will the future histories told of today be? Will they be stories of workers' lives and struggles? Or will they be the stories of this era's capitalists? Who will be the victors that write the histories of tomorrow? Of the struggles facing the modern working class, will we never forget? As we look back on the past and the many tragic and joyous things that have occurred on the 1st of May, it is wonderful to see how much our small community has grown over the years. Years of hard work, blood, sweat, and tears. But years of growth and community, too. Years of camaraderie and delicious meals. One local fascist once called out the community's very first mayday on the harbor since the collapse of the labor movement for falling flat in a post made to their now-defunct blog site, despite having a decent turnout for the length of preparation and resources available for the first Mayday event. We can only laugh at that short-lived fascist blog and its attempts to undermine the work of Harborite radicals as we smile and look onwards to the future. Though many trials and obstacles await, we will continue to outgrow the fascist creep and continue to do everything we can to bring class consciousness to the harbor. As we look forward to the fourth annual May Day on the Harbor in 2024, with the experience of our past successful events under our belts, we wonder, will local leftist festivities continue to fall flat? We hope so. All right, it's time for a musical break, and when we come back, we will have an interview with Dr. Aaron Goings about his presentation at May Day on the Harbor. But for now, here is Them Badgers, live from May Day on the Harbor, 2023. <laughs> Thank you. 
Welcome back to Molotov Now. Today we are with Dr. Aaron Goings, PhD Associate Professor of History at St. Martin's University, to discuss a report back on the May Day on the Harbor event in Hoquiam, Washington, put on by the Black Flower Collective, where he gave a presentation on the 100th anniversary of the murder of William McKay, a striker who was killed on the picket line in Aberdeen, Washington. It's wonderful to have you here today, Dr. Goings. Why don't you go ahead and tell our audience a little bit about yourself and the work that you do? Great. Yeah, thank you. So, um... I'm Aaron Goings. I'm a history professor uh, at St. Martin's uh, University. Um, I'm I live in uh, Tacoma, Washington, so about 25 miles north of my job. Um, and I'm from Aberdeen. Uh, lived 20 plus years on the harbor. Down, I guess, almost entirely in Aberdeen. Uh, Went to Grace Harbor College. That was my first college, and I'm a labor historian. So, uh, so that means I study uh, work, workers, um, class conflict, and any assorted things that are related to that. Awesome. How did you get into that sort of uh, interest? Right. So, um, yeah. So I uh, I grew up in Aberdeen um, uh, at the bottom of the hill. There and I think Aberdeen's Hill has a lot of meanings, and it used to maybe mean more. I don't know. So I lived on the lowlands, and I always saw the hill as being where rich people lived. And I think most many of them moved to the Puget Sound. A lot of people refer to the area you're talking about as Felony Flats, don't they? Oh, (laughs) I don't know. Uh, If it's the same area I'm thinking of. I, I don't know. I, I I just always associated those um, the Broadway Hill area and uh, and further up with uh, wealth and power and those of us at the bottom uh, with being uh, very different. And so uh, my family was working class. Basically, every person in my family, uh, every man in the family, worked in the lumber and pulp and paper industries. Um, and so, uh, after the 1930s, those industries were basically entirely unionized, um, up until fairly recent history, as so much of that industrial production shut down uh, at the end of the 20th century. But really, throughout, for about 50 years, those were relatively high paying, if extremely dangerous, dirty, hot jobs. And so, from the start of it, my life was, uh, you know, 
fairly comfortable as a working class kid, in part because of the victories won by um, by those unions. And it annoyed me throughout school the way history was taught, uh, that it was very much a history of wars, a history of rulers and the elite. I think public schools are maybe doing a better job of this now, high schools and junior high, but I don't really remember or I don't know what they're up to. So the funny thing about that, so that uh, documentary that we had watched at uh, um, at the Mayday on the Harbor, I had actually had never even he- heard about it uh, before then. Uh, like the person who was telling me about it for the, for the event was uh, uh, they had actually gone to school in uh, it was either Arizona or New Mexico. And they went to like some private school down there where their teacher had them watch it. And it's like, I never once in my entire life growing up here have heard of this movie. Oh, uh, the labor um, wars of the Northwest. That yeah. Movie. So, yeah. So for, for our listeners, it, it's a good watch. If you, if you can uh, uh, find a way to uh, get it, it, it's a bit difficult now. Um, I think you said someone else had uploaded it somewhere. Yeah. Uh, if you've got a Timberland library card, they have access to a digital database digital platform called canopy starting with a k and that's um a collection of uh mostly documentaries but also fictional films um and you can you can watch it there on your computer or device or whatever and it's um it's called labor wars of the northwest okay that's good to know because i had initially got it on a vimo and it's not available there anymore yeah i'm uh yeah, that uh, that website can uh, be very, very helpful and then very disappointing. So so it was really the economic dynamics on the harbor that got you interested in studying that sort of history. Yeah, that that was a big part of it. And then just sort of an annoyance or anger with the way that uh, history was taught, that history was remembered and just the way that society was talked about as if you know, that we're all just one big happy family in the United States that, uh, you know, class differences uh, didn't matter. This So this is the 1980s, 1990s. I think, fortunately, through mass movements and a few maybe prominent people, discussions of class and class conflict are much more public now and much more uh, open to discussion. But that that was not the case when when I was young, and um, so I I guess a combination of um, uh, economic circumstances, uh, talking about class with family, um, and then I I remember the day I opened Howard Zinn's book, uh, People's History of the United States. Um, I I wasn't one of these kids who was like a lot of my, people I work with, you know, grew up going, you know, other professors. Grew up, you know, learning several languages, uh, summering in France, having these very elite backgrounds and, you know, reading everything imaginable. That wasn't the case with me. I was a pretty standard blue collar, boring kid. And uh, sports were what mattered. Sports and TV, I guess. And when I got to college, though, I found some really important books. But Howard Zinn's People's History was the most important, for sure. And the way that it talked about people's history, the way that it talked about workers and the movements from below is very different from the way that history had been taught. 
Well, I'm certainly glad you got the alternative background for learning about your history, because it seems like a lot of historians swing one of two ways. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think in 2023, they, things are shifting a bit. I think there are more historians who focus on people's history, on social movements. But yeah, the historians one usually sees on TV are still talking about Lincoln, talking about uh, wars, talking about diplomacy, talking about Nazis. And, and, And in fairness, that does get viewers. I think if I taught a class called American War History, the class would be packed. So... Well, I, I like the framing, again, with the documentary, the, the labor wars. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I think violence, which is so fundamental in U.S. history, U.S. labor history, you know, does does capture attention. It, it's pretty effective at that. And American, not just U.S., but uh, global uh, labor struggles are often violent. It's just that in the United States, they're more so, and they have been more so, especially compared with so-called peer countries of Europe, Japan, etc. So on May Day, you talked a lot about the uh, history on the harbor of the Aberdeen free speech fights, uh, the murder of William McKay, uh, all the union organizing that the Wobblies did out here. Was that stuff that you had to go and research or was that ever talked about when you were a kid? No, no, I had... I had zero idea until I was in college. So, um, no, was that after you had left Aberdeen? Yes, actually, it was not talked about even when I went to Grays Harbor College. I was, um, I had left Aberdeen, and I just when I was doing research projects, I started uh, looking into my hometown history. And what really did it for me, though, what really got me interested was going. And looking at microfilm newspapers. So this is uh, before the internet had really taken off. It certainly existed, but there were virtually no historical materials online. So nowadays, it's fairly easy to do a lot of research uh, in newspapers, in basically anything from your couch using uh, the internet. This is 20-something years ago, and I was in the archives, in the... um, in the microfilm newspapers and finding these materials was just so fascinating. And a big part of that was finding materials that weren't made by elites. They weren't made by, uh, you know, Hollywood producers. They weren't made by writers at the New York times. They were made by workers. And uh, so I found out about this history, long history of uh, labor journalists and labor writers and that's where the materials were. And basically every day for 10 years, I was um, digging through archives, digging through old newspapers. Uh, it was it was pretty fun, but it, it, it really takes a lot of time and a lot of work to reconstruct a history when there's almost no uh, no traces remaining. Yeah, they really did a whole lot to try to bury all that his- history. So like Sprout was saying, we caught your presentation at the May Day on the Harbor uh, event put on by the Blackflower Collective. How did your work bring you there? Yeah, so uh, so I've been pretty cut off from Aberdeen, from uh, that part of the world for uh, for quite a while now. Uh, much of my family lives there, but I don't 
uh, pay very much attention. So, um, but I have written some books about Aberdeen, about Southwest Washington. And so it was uh, a uh, big surprise, but also a really big happy, uh, happy surprise when um, the Black Flower Collective members of that reached out to me, I think first by email. And it was originally the 2022 May Day event they uh, asked me to go to, but I was busy, was going to something in Seattle. Um, so I had a year to get ready. And that's pretty good timing because I was wait- I've was i been waiting for about a decade to, uh, to commemorate uh, William McKay's uh, tragic tragic murder in Aberdeen. Yeah, the timing on that is pretty impeccable. So how was the event for you? Oh, the event uh, was was terrific. I had no idea what to expect. I I didn't know what this place was that I was going to. Um, Google Maps showed me that it was in what looked to be a a, a church in the, the lowlands of Hoquiam. Uh, but I, I walked in and uh, it was it was amazing there. Uh, I I honestly can't. I can't tell you how different it was from what I expected. I've been to these kind of boring uh, local history events in museums many times in my life. Um, This was very different. So all around the outside of the space were um, uh, were people, uh, you know, talk, selling and giving out uh, uh, materials, radical history materials, uh, materials that really connected uh, the um, uh, the 21st century with the 20th century, and it, it was fascinating. And it was it was packed. I had no idea how many people would be there, but it sure looked to me like there were between I don't know 50 to 100 people. It was very lively. Um, people were having fun. There was food. Um, it, it was a really great event. Really, really well planned. Um, and from what I could tell, there were no, uh, uh, police or vigilantes. So, yes, <laughs> it's always a concern. A <laughs> little bit. Well, it would certainly seem like the history would support that concern. Uh, let's start diving into some of that. So let's talk about the presentation you gave at Mayday. Mayday 2023, uh, was the hundred year anniversary of, um, you know, Western Washington, uh, Aberdeen, Hoquiam, et cetera, really being uh, the center of the global labor left, at least for a few days. And so uh, May Day 1923 was an event that really made uh, national and international news. Uh, That day, um, and in the days leading up to it, actually, workers went on strike in many different industrial towns, port cities, and the like, with one demand, one main demand. And that demand was that that the federal government, the county governments, the state governments needed to free all political prisoners. The United States has this myth that uh, we're such a free country, we don't have any political prisoners. Uh, that's, of course, uh, silly. And it's been true since the start. The United States has had political prisoners this group that I've been studying for 20 years or so, the Industrial Workers of the World, the Wobblies, are this radical organization um, that had faced persecution for years and years. Many of their members, their most active members, you know, were incarcerated in uh, jails and prisons all over the country, all over the world. And the Wobblies, 
the nickname for this industrial workers of the world group, uh, went on strike, uh, uh, hoping to put political pressure on the state authorities to open uh, to open the jails, open the prisoners. Uh, it's one of these general strikes, right? What I think today in 2023, when we hear about strikes, they're usually small, small things, uh, teachers, maybe nurses, and they are important. Um, for we kind sure. of got that uh, writer's guild strike going on, don't we? Yes, yes. And there might be a teamster strike coming up uh, very soon uh, that uh, with UPS, which would have the uh, chance to really shut down the entire country in some ways. Teamsters are really central to moving goods throughout the country. Well, here's um, hoping. Yeah, well, we'll see. Uh, so, uh, but there are, uh, there is this global history of uh, general strikes, including maybe most famously the Seattle general strike of 1919. Um, and these are strikes um, that are often waged not just for weight, for higher wages, uh, shorter hours and the like. Those things are often called bread and butter uh, demands, uh, but instead for a wider political demands. So just for an example, at different times, uh, European countries in particular have uh, have waged general strikes, for example, uh, to fight against changing of retirement ages. Um, the Finns in, in Finland, when it was still part of Russia before the Soviet Revolution, had a general strike to, in part to demand the extension of the vote to women. So this 1923 general strike uh, waged by the IWW centered in uh, Aberdeen, Oakwim, um, and some other places around uh, the Northwest. Um, they had a very political demand, forced the politicians to open uh, the jail and the prison doors. Any country who denies their prisoners the right to vote has made all their prisoners political prisoners. Ah, that's that's nicely put. Uh, right. And today in uh, 2023, the United States has the largest uh, prison population uh, by a lot. Um, and uh, just keeping this very long history of um, really an incarceration nation Um and one that uh, abuses, tortures, uh, uh, incarcerated people in so many different ways. I think, uh, if anything, the COVID pandemic revealed some of those horrors for anyone except the most hardened individual to see. All right. So coming into the May Day presentation, I was expecting the talk about 1923 and the murder of William McKay. One thing I wasn't expecting that I really enjoyed was the sort of connective tissue that you laid out all the way back to the origins of May Day and how those intervening years is kind of where those political prisoners came from and all the different actions that took place in between those two. Is that why they chose May Day in 1923 for their strike? Yeah, uh, good, good question. Um, right, so May Day is uh, the most important labor holiday in the world by a lot. May Day, International Workers' Day, is the most widely celebrated holiday in the world, I believe, by a long shot. And basically, every year, 
since 1886, there have been some sort of demonstrations to uh, either commemorate what happened May Day 1886 and its aftermath, or to use that date to launch uh, a new campaign. So uh, strikes that begin on uh, May 1st uh, have a long history. And in fact, uh, there are at least a few minor strikes, as in small, not uh, like coal miners, in Aberdeen and the surrounding areas that uh, started on on May Day. Uh, so the uh, you mentioned the uh, intervening years from 1886, from the first big May Day event in in U.S. and North American history, and then 1923. So that's something like uh, almost 40 years. Um, really, from about 1910-1911 until uh, 1922-1923, it was very, very common for local authorities, state authorities, and federal authorities to round up, to arrest members of the IWW, uh, Wobblies, and to lock them up. The biggest uh, change in that history is that, well, it's are these uh, laws called criminal syndicalism laws that pass in more than half the states. They pass, uh, the Idaho legislature is the first to pass it in 1917. Oregon passes it. Washington passes it two years later. Um, and essentially that criminalized uh, an ism. It criminalized a belief system and it criminalized belonging to the IWW. And so the Enemies of the IWW, the employers, the newspaper editors, the elites in uh, political office and all their assorted friends, they they take this law that they passed at the behest of large corporations who asked the legislatures to pass this. Uh, essentially, the uh, local, etc., law enforcement, police use the, that new law to go and round up uh, members of the IWW, which they did all over the country. Um, Washington state was one of the real centers of that. Hundreds of wobblies in this state uh, arrested for criminal syndicalism. Disproportionate share were people born in other countries, immigrants, but they rounded up old, young men, women, people from lots of different, lots of different backgrounds, lots of different jobs. And prior to that, prior to the criminal syndicalism laws, states and localities like to use these things called vagrancy laws. Uh, Vagrancy, essentially, those laws that existed all over the country, those existed to criminalize the crime or the act of existing, Um, (laughs) existing on the street and not being able to prove that someone had a job. That's interesting that you mentioned that because that sounds very uh, like a mirror of what we're dealing with today here in Aberdeen with, again, vagrancy laws. Um, they, they tried to pass a law a while back ago and then on you're not allowed to share food or give out food and whatnot. Um, yeah, there, there's been an ongoing battle between the city and the people who live here for some time now over the issues that cry very similar to not only the um, the fights that we were having back then, but the conditions as well. Right. Yes, I'm I'm not surprised and I'm certainly followed some of 
the uh, the goings on in uh, municipalities all over uh, all over the country to, like I said, uh, criminalize the act of being, the act of living, the act of trying to survive. There, there is a long history of that. The cruelest people. Well, no, there's there's levels of cruelty, but one of the cruelty cruelest groups would say something like, at least historically, they would say, "Oh, uh, uh, at least they, meaning the people uh, arrested for vagrancy, then would have a roof over their heads in the jails." Forgetting, of course, that that's incarcerating someone rather than helping them to um, have housing to to live. But these vagrancy laws in Washington, which I know the most about, they are frequently used as a tool to arrest union organizers and union activists. So a union activist would might show up on the train, ride in into Aberdeen, for instance, and then the police would, if they knew that that person was a union organizer, would arrest them, charge them with vagrancy, keep them in jail, and then demand that they leave after they're released. You know, you can you can uh, be released from jail if you leave. Um, in the South, after the Civil War, um, vagrancy laws were used essentially to uh, re-enslave people. There's this uh, very well-known um, book and documentary called Slavery by Another Name. Um, and uh, after the passage of the 13th Amendment ended uh, legal slavery. Once whites, white supremacists gained control of all parts of the state governments in the South, they um, they began using vagrancy laws to uh, to lock up formerly enslaved people. Then they would be put in jails and prisons, and then they would be sold or leased uh, to large companies, especially logging and mining and road building companies on these chain gangs. So that was called the um, convict lease system. So vagrancy laws are have a very important place in United States history. Um, it varies from place to place. And in, in the Northwest, it's used as a hammer to really pound labor activists, as well as, you know, people experiencing homelessness. Yeah, there's a YouTuber I watch that actually covers a lot of that history very well. The The channel is called Lectural Media, and the video is called The History of Homelessness. But uh, yeah, they, they, they talk a lot about the, how vagrancy laws were used to uh, re-enslave, re breed slaves, and by uh, outlawing their existence. Wow, that's that's awesome. Thank you. Uh, there's um, There's one thing that I wanted to mention. I didn't get into this at the May Day event, but really um, one period of time in um, in U.S. history, in Washington state history, in Northwest history, where we see a lot of activism that I think, you know, bottom-up activism, activism uh, on behalf of the people uh, is during the Great Depression. And I think that has a lot of uh, parallels to uh, to today. And one thing that you see um, you see it with the remnants of the IWW, because by the 1930s, when the Depression is really underway, um, the IWW was in decline. But you also see it in the Communist Party, 
who were very strong in um, in Aberdeen, in Hoquim, uh, Seattle, uh, very, very strong. They had halls, they had activities, presidential, uh, communist presidential and gubernatorial. There's been a photo I've been trying to find for some time. I remember seeing it in a local uh Facebook history group or whatever, but it was actually a photo of some of the the uh, Finn unionists in front of the uh, Finnish Union Hall here in Aberdeen, actually holding up a USSR flag uh, for the photo. I've been right. trying to find that photo for a minute now. Yeah, I think that history uh, might be even more buried than the IWW history. I think there's a myth that uh, American communists were just stooges controlled by Moscow, and it's especially important now since the powers that be or whatever we want to call them have decided that Russia is the enemy again. Probably didn't Uh, help them that they named a Soviet Seattle. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. Uh, um, But so uh, the the communists in in Aberdeen, communists in Hoquiam, communists in lots of cities uh, across the country, um, they organized what were called unemployed councils. And these were activist groups that would show up at the city council and they would essentially occupy the city council, demanding that the city council took action, take action like uh, provide free milk for children, uh, take action like provide uh, free wood during the winter so that people can heat their homes. Um, They would also go around and when unemployed people would have their uh, power shut off, for instance, or their water shut off, uh, these um, these activists, these unemployed activists would go around and turn it back on. Um, I think that that kind of direct action has a really long history uh, nationally, but it also has a, a, a strong history in Grays Harbor. My father alone, I remember growing up multiple times, him just going out there and turning the valve back on himself. Just just like, fuck the water company. They're mad because we're a day late on the payment. Right. Yeah. I I never did get one of those devices, uh, the wrench or whatever it is to be able to do that. But I've 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 heard it's a lot easier than. But th- that type of activism, and, um, and there were uh, dozens and then hundreds of people in Aberdeen and Hoquiam who were uh, in the Communist Party and were associated with these unemployed councils. So they would have, for example, May Day uh, parades through through Aberdeen in the early 1930s. They would they would have meetings at the at the communist halls, which were sometimes centered at the the Finnish halls, the Red Finn halls. Sometimes they'd be elsewhere. And actually, they're the ones, these communist activists who play a very important role in forming those unions uh, in the 1930s that um, proved to be so significant in 20th century history. Uh, I I mentioned a while ago how there was this boom period of, you know, relative prosperity for much of the 20th century. Of course, it was totally uneven, very much racialized, very much gendered. But those benefits that were spread around a lot more evenly than they are today, those are won by those big unions. And in many places, the dock workers, the lumber workers, those are the two important, most important ones on the Pacific coast. It, it's communists driving that early organizing. And they, they were the ones who, like William McKay, 
uh, were willing to take beatings, willing to take arrests. Uh, just to really emphasize this part that this the history of, of working class organizing, the history of labor activism in the United States is very violent. And it's not violent in this sort of silly, uh, uh, oh, Jim, Jimmy Hoffa is a mobster type violence. It's true that sort of stuff happened. Um, but boy, anytime workers went on strike, bosses would call the strike breakers. They'd call the Pinkertons and uh, they would call the police and the National Guard. You know, they, they still do that, that kind of strong arm tax and whatnot today. Uh, just here recently, uh, Wizards of the Coast, the company that owns Magic the Gathering, had actually sent out Pinkerton agents to retrieve a... Um, a new set of magic cards that weren't released yet that they accidentally sent out on a different uh, shipping line because the uh, set before it had a very similar name and they sent it, the the guy who received it wasn't expecting it and then he did like, like a review on it and they sent Pinkerton agents to his house with a contractor retrieval to essentially strong arm him and to give him back the giving him back the magic cards. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Pink Pinkerton agents never never went anywhere. They still exist. They're still. They still provide surveillance. They still provide uh, union busting. Uh, who knows exactly what they're up to? It, in the late 1800s and into the 1900s, it, in the American West, the other version of the Pinkertons were called Thiel agents, T-H-I-E-L. Um, I believe there's some sort of supervillain right now named Peter Thiel, but that's separate. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, the Thiel agents were uh, Pinkertons that had a real strong base throughout uh, the American West. I don't know if they still exist. Uh, it'd be funny if they changed the spelling of their name to this this new this uh, Lex Luthor type guy. Uh, <laughs> but um, the uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think that uh, I'm really glad that you all are doing this this podcast in in part because this stuff I talk about is history, but much of that history is very much important to this day. And I think we can draw lessons about that history for today. That's one of the main reasons that I study history, that I teach history, is not just to have some boring, some dry lectures that puts people to sleep, but instead to say, well, look at what was done in the past. What lessons can we learn from that? I mean, I think so much of history is taught um, in a way that really is used to build consensus, is used to really teach uh, certain myths and to really preach nationalism among among the people, among the masses. And I think that when we see the History Channel, when we see presidents and other elites talking about their historical lessons, you know, they'll say bullshit like, uh, oh, uh, those who don't learn from the past are condemned to repeat it. Well, history has a lot of purposes. And if you have historians and people who know history who are interested in other lessons, who are interested in those moments in history where basically powerless individuals came together as a group to demand change. Those are the real interesting lessons in history. And we have a lot to learn from that, whether it's the civil rights movement, whether it's the suffrage movement, or whether it's the labor movement. And what we see, I think the lesson that is as central to that as anything else 
is that power won't concede anything without demand to sort of paraphrase uh, Frederick Douglass, but also power won't concede anything without organizing and without being forced to, you know, to force to um, get out of the way, forced to, sorry, uh, power won't, they won't compromise unless they're really forced to. And the way uh, that historically those in power, those uh, at the top of society have been forced to relinquish some of their wealth, some of their power, and to share their wealth, power, and prestige is by the millions, the masses of people in this country coming together, uh, overlooking whatever differences they might have, and challenging those in power collectively. What are some of those lessons that you think we could apply to our struggles today? Struggles facing housing and homelessness, um, struggles facing unionization, struggles facing uh, various social issues, especially in especially in small towns such as here in Aberdeen. Um, like we're coming up on an election where we're going to have uh, two choices, essentially one Democrat and one Republican, and both of them pretty much have the same exact plan for the city, increase revenue and get rid of the homeless at any means necessary. Well, I, I think that is and not uh, get rid of the homeless in a nice way. Yeah, I mean, that's one. Well, that's one of the most grim things I've heard in a very long time. And it's I I think what we can gather from history, what we can learn from history are that those in power are going to organize. They are organized. Those with resources, those with money, they are organized and they have a lot of friends in the press, in the police and other really mechanisms of power, other uh, parts of society that have power. They all get along. They all hang out at clubs together um, and they'll all act on each other's behalf. What I think might be a valuable lesson, although I don't want to tell, I mean, I don't want to tell people what to do, but in the past, you know, reaching out, you know, doing what uh, the, the communists did in the 1930s, joining up with sympathetic groups and forming a popular front. You know, if, you know, if homeless activists are a, a small and relatively uh, powerless minority, find church groups, find um, uh, sympathetic uh, unions and, and come together as a uh, as a group to uh, to challenge those in power, because, you know, there are sympathetic left wing groups, semi left wing groups in society that could maybe lend a hand. Some churches, I don't I don't know which ones, but. Uh, in terms of unions, if I was looking for support for anything, maybe uh, the, the Longshoremen's Union, the International Longshore and Warehouse Union can sometimes, you know, be very, very supportive of progressive causes. And then, you know, I, I don't know how effective this would be in today's political climate, but definitely in the 1930s, activists short, showed up in force. It's very easy for those in power to pick on five or 10 people but if a thousand show up on the streets and have a parade, a thousand show up and have a march, that's a little that's a little bit different. Or if dozens of people show up at the uh, city hall and demand a uh, more humane, more humane treatment of people that that's harder to ignore. And so I think definitely reaching out to potential 
supporters has been something that worked in the past. Uh, using the, this popular front idea of getting other left and progressive groups who care about, you know, people experiencing poverty, people uh, unemployed, etc. Um, and, and then also certainly in, in the 1930s, you know, showing one's numbers is a good way to do it. Politicians will sometimes listen to voters, you know, sometimes. I don't know. If I don't listen. think uh, any of the politicians that we currently have are going to be willing to listen to the voters. According to them, they're not politicians. So mm. nah, I don't know. <laughs> so um, you two know so much more about uh, organizing, you know, than I do in the current events. I know. Well, Spro, about- why don't you go ahead and uh, 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 take the floor to uh, uh, explain some of the current situations going on in Aberdeen? Well, we've been organizing for about three years here actively. And in that time, we've seen similar organizing efforts on the other side, the fascist side, the far right side. And they've made a lot of political gains. They've gone from just cleaning trash up and taking exploitative pictures of people's tents to actually being on city council. And And not picking up the trash anymore. That was more a platform just to get them votes, it would turn out. But, you know, now we have one of them running for mayor. The other person who looks like they're running for mayor is a liberal, probably running on a Democrat ticket. Um, But their views align in a lot of ways, especially when it comes to, uh, like Sherry Ann said, the gentrification, trying to eradicate the homeless and increase the revenue coming into the city through tourism and, you know, turning this into a, a quaint little village that people want to come visit and and open up airbnbs and uh you know have their second home here in the hills they, they want to turn the town into ocean shores or what's that new one they just built here recently um seabrook is that what it's called oh yeah seabrook yeah it's a new little uh boy uh i i tell you i've heard people wanting those in in power those in the city council chamber of commerce saying that aberdeen's going to be the next Port Townsend or the next Astoria since I was a kid. Same. I mean, that do they not know it rains 110 inches? It's never going to be a vacation spot. It's- the only reason people drive through here at all is because it's the only you have to drive through here to get to the beach. That is the only reason we get any traffic. Nobody is stopping here for nothing. They're really trying to make a big thing out of the Kurt Cobain having lived here thing. Um, they're running with his memory as far as they can which is funny because for the longest time in my my life growing up it was those same people who like fought against that because we're not going to have a drug addict be the representative of our town right well you know it's kind of what people know the area for at this point and it's what brings in probably the most people so they seem to be embracing that and turning towards uh trying to generate tourism off of him and so you know there's it's not just him there's other bands it's sort of a musical area so they're trying to sort of generate that income and yeah, i believe alice and chains also kind of had a start here too yeah a lot of the development that we've seen move in is from one individual terry emmert um out of oregon so that's been rough to have i mean it feels like 80 percent of the city bought up by this single individual um and so yeah the plan is definitely to increase tourism and increase revenue and the people 
getting blamed for the reason that that's not happening are the homeless in town because we've got people like Terry Emmert blaming them in the daily world saying stuff like, you know, it's hard to rent a building when there's someone sleeping in the doorstep, you know, not minding the fact that it's hard to rent a building when you're trying to charge three times more than what it's worth without working fire suppression systems. (laughs) So, yeah, um, but it's an easy target. It's a real easy target. So um, they've been pushing that. So that's a concern now is that we have we're going to have this more liberal player on the ticket who is definitely anti-homeless. And yet we're going to, you know, that's going to be a different fight. It's easy to fight the far right from where we're at. Not Uh, so much. Someone who has some sort of, what would you say, I guess, center left credentials and uh, Democratic Party credentials. It's always harder to push back against that sort of stuff because of the lesser of two evils kind of argument. The, like pe- people came out in droves for w- w- with signs and protests, you know, get kids out of cages, stop the kids in cages in reference to the like the, the, the migra- migration crisis at the bo- border. And as soon as Biden comes into office, he enacts policies arguably worse than Trump's. And there is nowhere near the backlash. Right. Yeah. Uh, I, I like the. um the, rather than the lesser of two evils, I've heard uh, the evil of two lessers. Um, <laughs> yeah. so, yeah. I might have to steal that, which is that why might be appropriated. I think it's really <laughs> invaluable the work that you've done and and the lessons that you were talking about in realizing because you're the way you talk about it. You're always saying the people in power, and to me, that's the key: is that it doesn't matter who the individual person who is in power, power has this tendency to act and consolidate itself and to manage and, uh, like you said, organize its own interests, regardless of the people who flow in and out of this, the actual position of power. Um, so I think that that's a key lesson to learn is that it doesn't really seem to matter who we vote into office. We're always fighting the, these positions of power. Yeah. And on, it's funny hearing, media, whatever, corporate media talk about, uh, you know, things are so partisan, but on so many issues, boy, they agree. Uh, On the military, they agree. On prisons, they agree. On stepping on poor people, they agree. On the empire, they agree. The people in power tend to agree. It's a, what was that George Carlin quote? Uh, It's a, it's a small group and you ain't in it. It's, uh, I mean, it, it's I, I can't even imagine uh, what uh, what you, your work, what you're dealing with. Um, but but the work you're doing is I, I mean, I uh, it's the most probably the most important thing going on uh, down there. And, uh, you know, selfishly, I'll just say that um, my wife kind of reminded me of this. But like um, so COVID kind of destroyed my brain. Yeah. And I like didn't want to do anything for the longest time and just sort of you guys kind of uh, lit a fire under my ass. And it's uh, I mean, it's 100 percent because of uh, that event, uh, the 100 year anniversary stuff. So I appreciate that. Like you wouldn't like you wouldn't believe. So thank, thank you. Thank you. Well, we appreciate the work that you've done and illuminating the sort of like I said before, uh, invaluable sort of research you've done illuminating the history on the harbor. Um, you know, like you said, it, it's 
easy nowadays to do research and we've certainly done quite a bit, but it's that primary, you know, digging through the archive sort of stuff that we've benefited so much from by reading your books and um, your articles. And yeah, we really appreciate the the hard work that you put into getting that information out there. Thank you. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the joke about uh, historians is um, we all wanted to be, um, lighthouse operators but those jobs got mechanized so uh, <laughs> you know, we just want to sit alone and uh and research so the um but i i hope to have some more stuff out pretty soon i really appreciate uh you all uh, uh getting that article off of uh the UW's website that red harbor article uh, which i always get confused because that's the title of my dissertation too um and it was funny when Somebody mentioned printing it off and distributing it last year. I was like, oh, my God, that's like 500 pages. That's, uh, you know, I, I feel bad for the trees, kind of bad for the trees. <laughs> I was hoping to maybe get into a little bit of the Billy Ghoul stuff. But if you're open up to it in the future, maybe just do, do that as a separate episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That'd be fun. Billy. Hey, <laughs> uh, the only uh, <laughs> labor union leader with a... Uh, Restaurant named after him. <laughs> well, yeah, I know. I'm sure there's a lot of people who would like to hear more about that. Yeah, it was very cool to have. Um, I don't know who they were, but there were some very good, nice people, some very good questions about that. Um, and uh, and yeah, that's uh, like I said, um, that book, hopefully it keeps selling because I want to donate. Uh, well, I'm going to donate all the proceeds to black flower collective um at the end of this year so hopefully it keeps selling that's awesome well get out there and buy that book guys <laughs> so dr goings before we wrap up here tonight uh, i'd like to talk more about the uh, uh about the closer that you had and the final message and your presentation on mayday uh, about how we never forget right so uh so William McKay uh was killed shot in the back of the head on May 3rd 1923 5 days later uh there was his funeral march a massive demonstration of about a thousand workers marched through Aberdeen pretty brave considering the years of persecution they suffered and they carried a sign through through downtown Aberdeen and then uh, held that sign up uh, at uh, at the funeral. And it said, fellow worker William McKay, uh, murdered by a capitalist gunman, we never forget, question mark. And the question mark has always been a really significant part of that story to me um, because it really haunts, haunts me and it haunts everything that we do. And I'm very glad that uh, because of uh, the Black Flower Collective, uh, we got to uh, think about that and do it in a very public way. And thanks to Counterpunch, I got to have an article get out there that talked about that history uh, on the 100-year anniversary of those tragic and violent events. But that history, that history of struggle, that people's history, the history of working-class people acting collectively to demand change and sometimes to win change, that's not a history that really 
gets talked about as as much as it probably deserves. It's a history that is forgotten. It is a history that's buried, and it's a history that's burned. Um, your listeners might uh, be familiar with the fact that um, the Aberdeen Historical Museum, where thousands or tens of thousands of priceless historical materials, including thousands upon thousands from the labor movement, uh, went up uh, uh, went up in a fire about five five or seven years ago, destroying uh, much of the workers' history in uh, in this area. But beyond that, there is a reality to that offset slogan. Um, histories written by the victors and the the reality is that those those who have won those in power those who run things are they're going to keep writing their history they're going to keep remembering their history and they're going to keep using their history to teach lessons those of us who can those of us who have a pen or a typewriter or a computer uh we need to write that history too and whether that's through blogs or tweets, or uh, or or writing books um, and articles. You know, we need we need to remember that past because that past has a lot of lessons. It's not the history from the perspective of those who ruled. It's the history of those who challenged that rule and who wanted to create a more uh, equal, a more peaceful, and a more decent society for everyone. I think those are very important words for everyone who wish to fight for a freer world need uh, need to take into consideration. Thank you for your time today, Dr. Goings. It has been amazing. Where can our audience find more of uh, you and your work? I heard you had a recent book coming out. Right. So uh, my most recent book came out right at the start of uh, the COVID pandemic. So I published a book called The Port of Missing Men about Aberdeen, about Grace Harbor, about the labor movement and about supposed serial killer Billy Gould. That's available from the University of Washington Press. I'm sure you can also buy it from most any online store, some less evil than others. Probably the best place to buy, buy the book, The Port of Missing Men or my earlier co-authored book from Oregon State University Press, um, which is called The Red Coast, pretty good title, I think, uh, is from actually from uh, the Black Flower Collective. So to find that, you can go to blackflowercollective.square.site. Um, and those are uh, autographed copies of the book. So, um, you know, you never know, they could end up being like a Picasso Probably not. I wouldn't be surprised. I think they're. That's right. I've said it. I've said it three times now, but I think they're invaluable. Really, I think they're great. That's very. Thank you. You have a good night, man. I uh, hope to do an episode here in the uh, f- future. To talk about uh, um, uh, Billy Ghoul and shit. Sure. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Uh, have a good night, and thank you so much right. again. Have a good night. So, in conclusion. There are loads of lessons to be learned by studying the past. Lessons that are directly applicable to our current day struggles. We can learn that it is wrong to trust the ruling class will ever do anything but consolidate power and serve its own interest. We can learn that the police, courts, politicians, and major institutions will always side with the status quo and work together to organize against the interest of the working class. The history of the working class struggle is incredibly violent and we could learn from that as we prepare our actions in the present. 
Power will never grant the demands of the workers. We must organize to take what we want without asking. It is not enough to go to the bosses with a list of demands. That has never worked. What we need to do is realize that we don't need the boss at all. Worker co-ops can replace the union negotiations with the bosses. We need to be organizing outside of our small circles. We need to be talking to and interacting with masses of people. People who may not be anarchists necessarily, but who want to see a better, more liberated world. We need to road test our ideas in the real world, alongside people with diverse opinions and life experiences. Not silo ourselves off into smaller and smaller designations. The core of our work needs to be rooted in joy, and the core joy of anarchy is that it is accessible to all. It is the spread of these ideals that we need to be concerned with, not evangelizing about sacred texts, but through living and practicing the very concepts in our daily lives for people to see and experience. Showing someone anarchy is going to do is going to go a lot further towards convincing them of its merits than merely telling them about it or having them read it in a book. YouTube video or podcast. Our actions are what is important, and it is by examining the actions of others in our region that we can find accomplices in our revolutionary work. Not by listening to what people say, but by looking at what they do. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Molotov Now. We hope you found it informative and inspiring. Our goal with the podcast is to reach out beyond our boundaries and connect the happenings in our small town with the struggles going on in major urban centers. We want to talk to you if you're a big city organizer. We think we have a lot you can learn from, and we know you have much to teach us. If you'd like to come on the show, please email us at sabo underscore media at riseup.net with the header Maltov Now, and we will be in touch about setting up an interview and crafting an episode to feature you. We want to give a shout-out to our friends at the South Florida Anti-Repression Committee, who have launched a solidarity campaign for two individuals facing 12 years for an alleged graffiti attack on a fake Christian anti-choice clinic that does not provide any reproductive care. This federal overreach and use of the FACE Act, an act meant to protect people visiting reproductive clinics from harassment, is unprecedented. To support this solidarity campaign, please visit bit.ly backslash free our fighters we want to thank the black flower collective for their continued support and wish them luck in their fundraising efforts to support them or learn more their website is blackflowercollective.noblogs.org collectiva the anarchist mastodon server is growing faster than ever thanks to elon musk's stupidity as many activists close their accounts for bluer skies as can be seen in the fluctuation of followers over on igd socials Join at collectiva.social. That's K-O-L-E-K-T-I-V-A dot social. And follow us and other online activists on the decentralized federated internet. Don't forget to go to bit.ly backslash Lakota Law ICWA and sign the petition by the Lakota People's Law Project telling Joe Biden and attorneys for the Department of Justice to do everything in their power to protect the Indian Child Welfare Act and defend Secretary Deb Haaland. Chehalis River Mutual Aid Network is holding a fundraiser to purchase a brand new canopy tent for their weekly meals with Food Not Bombs. To donate, visit linktree backslash crmutualaidnet. Don't forget, the communique is looking for artists and author submissions. Please write to sabo underscore media at riseup.net to submit your entry before June 7th for our summer solstice edition. 
As reported previously, Katie Hussey is still struggling in the wake of harassment by Dayton police that has cost her her employment and housing. Luckily, it appears as though charges against her have been dropped, but she has lost everything because of this and still faces an uphill battle in getting back on her feet. Please send any donations to Venmo at Katie Hussey, that's K-A-T-Y-H-U-S-S-E-Y, or Cash App Katie Hussey to help them during this time. Thank you to Pixel Passionate for producing our soundtrack. Please check out their website at www.radicalpraxisclothing.com and check out their portfolio in our show notes. And finally, we were recently featured on an episode of Live Like the World is Dying, here on the Channel Zero Network, where we delved into the dichotomies between rural and urban organizing and the plans for the radical future of the harbor. To check it out, visit the new webpage, blackflowercollective.noblogs.org backslash press. Remember to check out Sabo Media's website for new episodes, articles, comics, and columns. We have new content all the time. Make sure you follow, like, and subscribe on your favorite corporate data mining platform of choice, and go ahead and make the switch to Federated Social Media on the Collectiva Mastodon server today. At Aberdeen Local 1312 for updates on Sabo Media projects such as the Harbor Rat Report, the Communique, the Sabo Tours, our podcast Molotov Now, and many other upcoming projects. That's all for tonight. Please remember to spay new to your cats, and don't forget to cast your votes at those who deserve them. Solidarity, comrades. This is Molotov Now, signing off. Oh, no. Oh, no.